Uh, good morning, we're the Doobies. Today we celebrate the third Sunday of Advent. We are led in the Magi candle, and it reminds us that Jesus came to be the only wise king of the universe. Legend tells us that the gift of the Magi, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, had very symbolic but also practical uses. The incense was a symbol of royalty. The gold may have been used to help the young family flee from Herod into Egypt, and myrrh was used in the embalming for a shadowing of his death. Our reading this morning is from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where the Messiah was to be, born, to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then he would call the Magi secretly, and found out from them that that time the star, the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they, saw, after they heard the king, they went, they went on the way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and, bowed, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. I'm going to um, use Chase's apology and tell you I am also a little emotional. What a service this has been. I'm verklempt. My fishnicket is stuck in my galipticus. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. <clears throat> Sorry. Well, I've got you a little bit laughing, then I can throw a terrible joke at you. Um, an angel came to a, a dean at a college, and uh, he was visiting the faculty meeting, as angels do, apparently. Broke into the faculty meeting, and there was something unique about this dean, and so the Lord sent this angel to reward him, and so the angel said, in return for your unselfish and exemplary behavior, the Lord will reward you with your choice of infinite wealth, wisdom, or beauty. Without hesitation, the dean said, infinite wisdom. He knew his environment. He knew what he would need. He would knew what he would, uh, what, what would help him advance in his career and everything. Infinite wisdom. 
So the angel says, very well, poof, there you go. Poof, the angel was gone. The rest of the faculty sitting in that meeting were waiting. And after a long, awkward pause, one of them had the boldness to kind of speak up and say, well, say something brilliant. The dean says, should have taken the money. (laughs) See how wise you can get in an instant? We don't desire wisdom very often. I think it's on our list. Don't get me wrong. But if the angel came to us and said, what would you take? I mean, there's a lot of immediate interests and needs and things that we would say, okay, wisdom, it can come eventually, but I got some other things I've got to get done here. You know, it's, it's, it's not very convenient for the immediacy of our desires. Foolishness, which is the counter, the opposite of wisdom, obviously, hastily says things like, well, I've got to get mine. Or I can't wait until later. I've got needs now. Wisdom inconveniently says, I need to take care of others before I can take care of myself. Or uh, if I'm going to find fulfillment, I'm going to lift up other people's needs and interests before my own. Or... I'm going to sacrifice what I can have now for what I can have later or for what I want later. What does any of this have to do with Christmas? Well, it was more than loneliness and lies, the things that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks in our Advent series. It was more than loneliness and lies that beckoned our rescuer to come in the form of a human child. The dark cold of our silent night was made all the emptier by even our own ignorance of God's salvation. And make no mistake, when I've titled this sermon, Our Ignorance, I don't mean our intellectual deficiency. I mean our our unawareness, our our lack of knowledge and, and an idea of what was really available to us, that we were truly ignorant of God's salvation made available to us. Well, as we look at the characters of the story that we just had excellently read for us, your applause were appropriately placed. Uh, We are using the traditional name of those that are called the Magi, or we would know them as the wise men. And we're going to use their example and their story and their journey to help examine how the wisdom of God was born that night in Bethlehem. So I want to take some time to have us all examine what true wisdom looks like, but also we need to be warned, maybe even hopefully cured, Lord willing, of the foolishness that lives in all of our hearts. We would love to say we're going to be 100% wise, or once I give myself over to the Lord and say, okay, have your way, that my foolishness is totally eradicated, but if you're like me, you know that isn't the case. So let's take a look at some of the aspects or the components of this story to understand a few very important principles. The first being that the wise, any of us that are wise, will pursue the highest good over lesser prospects. We have an opportunity to look at this profile of the wise men, even though they aren't necessarily called that because they were more brilliant than anybody else. There's a lot more to it. But we get to use the example of the wise men to think about our own pursuit in journey of wisdom and how we receive it in the person of Jesus Christ. 
The Magi, or the Magoi, is what they would be called in the Greek, they resided in what we know to be today as Iran. They were known to be advisors to kings. They were a very religious uh, group of leaders. They were monotheistic, which means they worshipped one God. They weren't, um, you know, into the other religions that would celebrate God as everywhere, or multi-God, or anything along those lines. But they also had a magic about them. That's where we get the word magic or magician is from the Magi. They were pagan astrologers and astronomers. For them, there wasn't a great distinction. Today, we say, well, you can know the stars and the planets without getting into all the weird zodiac stuff. But but then there was a blurring of those lines. And astrology and astronomy were somewhat interconnected. I think it's also interesting we get our term magistrate from this as well. This signals to us that these magi had influence, strong and powerful influence, in things that would govern the people. Now, my little side note dig here is I wonder how much magic is going on in our, in our government structure today in terms of its influence. But our pay, they were pagan astrologers and astronomers. <clears throat> and even they go back to the time of Daniel. If you know the story of Daniel, um, he was uh, commissioned or called by King Nebuchadnezzar, who was suffering terribly in a dream. And he asked his magi, his wise men, his uh, magicians and thinkers and stuff to come forward and say, he said, I'm not even going to tell you what my dream is. So I want to pro- I want you to prove that you have this special divination. So that you can even tell me what I dreamt and then don't stop there, but explain the interpretation of the dream. And of course, the Magi were unable to do it. And they actually said, this is impossible. You're asking us in a very impossible task. No one can, well, maybe not no one. Now, my, my memory is triggered that there was somebody that uh, was spending time in jail who did this very thing for somebody else. Uh, a man named Daniel said that my God will give me the interpretation of the dream. And so he was able to prophesy what the dream was and the interpretation of it and everything. You should call this man named Daniel. So that's what the king did. And of course, Daniel, as we probably know from the Bible story, was successful, created a great, uh, provided a great warning to um, the people there at the time. And so Nebuchadnezzar made him a leader and a ruler over the Magi. So there's something of a heritage that comes from this time that has journeyed with these wise men in terms of a history and an understanding of the movements and the wisdom of the one true God. But again, it's mixed with some other things. So this is uh, just a bit of a profile of who we're dealing with. But if we think about wisdom, what is real wisdom? Most of us would go to a place of knowledge. We would say wisdom seems like the um, uh, accumulation of greater understanding and greater knowledge. I, I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. In fact, if we just go to the dictionary, we'll get a better distinction between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge simply is information gained through experience or reasoning. So that's a heavy emphasis on the information and the acquiring of it. Wisdom is the ability to discern or to judge what is true, what is right or lasting. Now we're getting below the surface a little bit more, but the scriptures would would even say that biblical wisdom, godly wisdom goes even deeper than that. 
Because a lot of us can say that we've grown wise from our experiences or our failures or things along those lines. But God said it even goes deeper than that. To be wise, biblically speaking, is more than just going through the experiences. It's doing what is right based on that knowledge and experience. This is how Jesus puts it in his Sermon on the Mount. If you've been uh, a disciple of mine or a counselee of mine, you know that I'm big on the passage of not just the Sermon on the Mount, but in particular, his statement and his um, uh, comparison of the wise man and the foolish man in Matthew 7. In verse 24, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And in verse 26, he says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So even Jesus is helping us to understand it's not a matter of knowing enough information. That's knowledge. It's not enough uh, to know the right thing to do. That's earthly wisdom. I can at least discern which way I should go. Jesus says godly wisdom is the one that actually goes that direction rather than just resting on the mere knowledge or experience of it. We could say it this way. Simply put, knowledge understands the traffic light has turned red Wisdom applies the brakes. So this is a profile of wisdom. Again, not they're not called wise men because they're smarter than everybody or they've got all the godly wisdom stuff down packed. But again, we're going to borrow their traditional title to be able to look at the wisdom that has come wrapped in a baby in Bethlehem. What is their pursuit? What are these wise men up to? It says in our text that they came to Jerusalem And Herod then sent them to Bethlehem. He sent them on a journey. So they have a pursuit that's going on. This is taking them eight, nine hundred miles or so to travel, which even for us in a car seems like, well, that's a long day in the car. Now you think about how they had to travel and a giant entourage. We probably have to put out of our mind our traditional music and our understanding of what the three kings or the three wise men are. Most of tradition says the reason why we call them three is because of the gifts that are represented in gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But no doubt it would have been a giant entourage committing five, six, seven months to the journey. So they would need um, supplies and provisions. They would need to look out for their own survival and make sure they're not being robbed with all that they're carrying, all that kind of stuff. This was a journey. This was a pursuit. All to ask the question, where is he who was born king of the Jews. Now I look at this and I say, okay, they're asking the right question, but they're asking the wrong people because there are people in their vicinity. They're going to ask this question to that can have knowledge. They're even going to say, well, we know where that's answer to this is found, but they're not asking fellow or fellow pursuers. They're asking people that just might know an answer. They want someone to experience the journey with them. They want someone to acknowledge why they came this far and why they spent all this expense and things just to ask this question and to have the answer laid out for them and to have the direction pointed. He's over there. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? You can picture in our text, it says that the scribes and the chief priests, when they were asked of Herod, hey, uh, you guys are, were, were expecting the Messiah. You were expecting the king of the Jews. Where is he supposed to come from? And I can almost picture them like writing their stuff or studying their things, just kind of looking up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Micah 5.2 said that he was supposed to, they wouldn't know 5.2, but Micah said that he'd be coming through 
Bethlehem. Then they put their heads down and keep on going. There's, there's nothing in the text that says that they pondered, why is the king asking this? Should we be looking for him too? Is there something changing here? What do we... The, the ones, again, we see it over and over, especially in the life of Jesus. We saw this as we were studying John. Those that should know he's coming, those that should be looking for his arrival seem to miss it. Even when asked directly, is there something I should know about this arrival of the king of the Jews? Yeah, 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 yeah. Micah said something about it. It's over there. Back to their work. Back to ignoring the fact that he has arrived. They're not seeking him. So again, they're asking the right question, but to the wrong people. Still getting their answer because that's the way the Lord willed it. They said, we want to find him because we've come to worship him. Now, it's important to know that these guys aren't just fans. They're not just coming because they want to be a part of a movement or part of this thing and say, hey, I was there when or something like that. They're there because they are very important to the process. They themselves are kingmakers. They're not the three kings from Orient are, but they are kingmakers. And there's stuff going on for them and their political structure and their disappointment with their own king and wanting him to really lead a rebellion against Caesar Augustus and restore the Persian Empire. So they have a lot of will in this. They have a lot of desire in this. And they're saying, we have heard that the king of the Jews, which is being rumored, by the way, to come from the next great leader will come from Judea. And Herod the Great knows this. He's aware of all the rumblings in his kingdom and all the, the region and things that he knows. They're expecting the next great leader, who is not going to be him, to come from Judea. And these guys are king makers. They're the ones that will approve their next king. It was required of future kings to master the science and religious dis- discipline of the magis and, and get their crowning. So when these guys are traveling, they're coming to put their stamp of approval on something. And then they ask the question, where's the one born, underscore this part, king of the Jews? They're asking Herod this. And they said, we saw his star. As I mentioned, they were astrologers and astronomers. They would look to, as people did then, look to the skies to map out and everything. But this star is a little bit different. It says, we have found, we have followed his star. There's an indication here that this is a supernatural star. And there's a lot of theories and all these inconclusive thoughts of what this could have been and this slow-moving comet or something like that. But things that don't really add up to the situation at hand. Most likely, it is a an appearing of God's glory. The scripture calls it the Shekinah glory. Shekinah is a, is a Hebrew word for uh, dwelling. So God dwelling in this bright light and this glory. In the Old Testament, it was the light that led the children of Israel through the wanderings of the desert. And as the star, as the glory of, as the bright light would move, so they would move. When it would sit still, then they would kind of say, okay, let's set up the tents and let's rest here a while. And then the glory would move on. They say, we got to move, pack up and move again. Ezekiel witnessed the glory of God coming and moving and moving throughout the temple and going through all these different locations and things. And Ezekiel said, I saw the the glory of God moving. And of course, we recognize this from our own recent study of the shepherds who were uh, tending to their flock and were startled by this brilliant light. 
Isaiah 9 says that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. So the Magi are saying, we followed his star. We followed it to this place and we know that it has more to go. Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Again, as we look at what do we glean from this? What challenge do we receive from their actions thus far? We have to understand that the, the Magi were at least wise enough to acknowledge what they didn't know. They were wise enough to acknowledge who they did not know. Who or whom? Whom they did not know. Jen, a little help? Whom? Whom, thank you. Did someone just get a picture of me failing? What was that? I saw a bright light. The Magi were asking questions. They were pursuing leads and they were investing in their own discovery, spending at great expense to go and find the answers to these ponderings. J.I. Packer says, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. They knew who to ask. They knew when to ask. They were humble and faithful enough to pursue and to follow. Question comes to us. How hard have we pursued a discovery of Jesus? I understand that scripturally speaking, theologically speaking, to know Jesus does not require effort on our part. There's been a lot of debate throughout the centuries about do we earn salvation? Is it a free gift from God? And when Jesus says the one work you can do is the work to believe that I am the one sent by the Father. I believe fully that there is nothing you and I can do to earn salvation, that we can't be good enough to get the payment and the redemption that we have from Jesus. It's just impossible. There's nothing good enough in me that could produce those kinds of results. So therefore, the only thing I can do is to receive. I can believe that he is the one that was sent by the Father and receive. But that also has a tendency to cloud my thinking that somehow to believe in God doesn't require some effort on my part. You know it. You live in your own doubts. I live in my own doubts from time to time. We have a system around us, a world system that's constantly pushing us away from the persuasion that there is a loving God who who, who loves you and sacrificed for you. We're called to doubt that at every turn. We're, we're human and we're flawed. We're, we're short-sighted. We're temperamental. We're impatient. All of those things get in the way and cloud my ability to believe that he's good enough, that he's sufficient for me, that he has provided a way for me. All of those things fight against. It's what I would call for me in my struggle most often. It's my flesh. So to, to ask myself the question, how hard have I pursued a discovery of Jesus? I would answer and say, depends. Some days I feel extremely motivated to pursue that. Some days I feel inclined to believe against all odds, no matter what's happening to me. And then others, if I'm being honest with you, I have to admit that the slightest thing can derail me. The slightest thing can discourage me, cause me to doubt in all of those things, Jesus is patient. In all of those things, Jesus understands, not because he failed at any point, 
but because he knew I would. And he had to provide for me all of my, all the things that my inconsistency and my failures would not earn. So we come back to this journey of the wise men. We ask ourselves the question, how hard have I pursued a discovery of who Jesus is? And I think it's a valid question. Not because I want you to feel when you leave here that you've got to crank up your religion, that you've got to put in the effort so that God will be impressed with you and say, okay, seems like you're been, you've been good enough. Seems like you've tipped the scales. I'll let you into heaven now. That, that is off the table. The Bible says it's impossible for us to provide that for ourselves. That there's no amount of impressing God that I can provide on my own. I simply receive his perfection, his righteousness, all of that he's done for me. And I just say, Lord, I humbly receive that. But I acknowledge that I am not prone to believe. I acknowledge that it is not easy for me to be faithful to you. And so I want to put my effort in. I want to give my life to, I want to like, like these men in these entourage that would travel for so many miles for so many months. I want to be one of the ones who pushes hard to discover more of who you are. The second principle that I'd like us to see is that the foolish will stoop to the lowest level rather than the highest plane. This is what foolishness does to us. In verse 3, we saw that when King Herod heard this, he was troubled. It's an extremely light word, probably very difficult to give us a stronger word that would, that would help us to understand. He's freaking out here in all of Jerusalem with him. When we take a closer look at what a fool looks like, we see it in the face and the actions of King Herod. Powerful, smart, I'm sure to a large degree, accomplished, and yet an utter fool. And he's revealing it in the way that he's troubled over the fact that he heard that there's another ruler that has come, and it seems like it could be the one that they've been rumoring throughout the land, that this great ruler would come from Judea. Now, Herod, now Herod, the king, he's not Jewish. He's received his throne largely from his father, who was gifted this um, uh, leadership or this reign, if you will, from Julius Caesar. And uh, so this is a kind of thing that's been handed down to him. And he's um, now in this role and he's received this title, the king of the Jews. Now the wise men show up and say, hey, king of the Jews, lower king, a lower K and king. Uh, Where is the one that we've heard has been born king of the Jews? Everything in him probably wants to say, you're looking at him and you don't need to look any further. But he's a little more cunning than that. He's a little slyer than that. He's a wicked tyrant of a man. He was jealous over his throne. He was jealous over his power. He would do anything he could to protect it and maintain it. He would kill off those that seemed to threaten it, even his own family. One of his nine wives or something like that, he had her executed. Two of his oldest sons had them executed. There was a statement that was going around at the time. It was safer to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. This is how... Oh, it gets even worse. Actually, I was going to say this is how terrible he is, but it's actually worse than this. He knew when he was dying that nobody would mourn his death because he was so hated. So what he did was he ordered that the nobility, the, the nobility in Jerusalem would be executed the day, all of them, the day that he dies, execute them all. 
Because I want there to be crying and mourning in the land when I die. Even if it's not for me, I don't care. I want all the hearts of the people to be broken. And this guy is the one that's going to say, tell me where the baby is because I want to worship him too. Yeah, right. Everything that we see in the folly of Herod is he is one, even though wisdom is presenting itself, it's falling at his feet, it's coming before him saying, we are finding and pursuing the answer and this is the one that could save your soul. He refuses and rejects it. Solomon, who is the wisest to walk the earth other than the Lord Jesus himself, wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. As we fear the Lord and what he could have done in that moment is feared in a proper way. The fact you mean he's arrived. You mean I've been kind of usurping his authority and being this wicked tyrant, but the one who's coming to judge me and the intentions of my heart has come. How do I give my life to him? How do I surrender and ask him, beg him for mercy to clean my ways and to put me on a new path? He could have done all of those things, but no, he didn't have the fear of the Lord. So he didn't have even the starting seeds of knowledge. Instead, he despised wisdom. He despised instruction. He despised rescue that was coming his way. This is the pursuit of a fool. We already heard that he had assembled his chief priests, his scribes. He summoned the wise men. The text says it was secretly. He is pursuing something. Now, I want us to think about this a little bit here. We think of wisdom and folly, and we think of folly as being that carefree, running around the backyard, chasing butterflies, not caring about your responsibilities and chores and things like that. It's not doing anything. Even the Proverbs help us understand, like if you kind of sit back and you fold your hands and just take a nap when you should be out working and preparing for the future and everything, that is the epitome of foolishness. So we have a tendency to think of foolishness as being passive. Wisdom is the more aggressive, it's going after things and it's pursuing the right things. But I also think too that foolishness, that folly pursues pretty hard. It goes after things pretty aggressively. You can think back to your own life, my own life, and I can think, man, the things that I seem to step in the deepest were things that I chased down pretty hard. All my thought was engaged in it. I would spend money towards it. I would pursue free time just to be able to experience it. All of those things were active pursuits on my part. Only to find out that folly is the aggressive pursuit of worthlessness. Herod is clawing. He is aggressive. He is going after his own self-preservation. So he thinks. He's building the kingdom of me. He is going after the protection of his own throne. And anything that comes to threaten it, he is going to seek to annihilate it, to wipe it out. The text later beyond our, our portion that we're studying will say that he set up that plan to wipe out the kids. I'm not taking a chance that this king of the Jews is going to survive and live. So when the text says that Herod was troubled, <laughs> like when we say, oh, that person's troubled, then there's a whole lot that we think. We just sum it up in one word. That's what our text is doing for us here. He's agitated. He's deeply concerned. I don't know. These meaning, these definitions don't seem to be deep enough for the one who is having this probably like a psychotic break in the fact that this greatest threat to my throne has arrived. 
So all of Jerusalem, the text says, now they're all troubled. Doesn't mean they're all concerned for him. Like, oh, poor Herod. No, it's kind of like when we say, um, when mama's not happy, nobody's happy. It's that kind of thing. Like it has a tendency to infect or taint the rest of the existence for everybody else. So his great trouble, his great agitation caused a heaviness and a burden on the people of Jerusalem. So he says, I I just want to know where the Christ was to be born. He's asking this of the scribes and the wise men and the chief priests, keeping in mind that this isn't his Christ he's looking for. Should be theirs, but it isn't all of theirs. No, Herod's fixation on his entitlement fueled an insatiable jealousy. And what we have to understand, this is the part that we have to peek in and clue and do a little bit of self-evaluation here, is that when we are wrecked with jealousy and the self-preservation of our own existence that people have to like us and feed us and protect us and all those sorts of things, inevitably, I am going to stoop to levels of deception. I cannot be truthful and maintain that at the same time. Those two things are incompatible. Because to be truthful means I really don't deserve everybody's praise. I'm really not as good of a guy as you all see and when I'm presenting myself or anything like that. To be truthful means I'm really not all I'm cracked up to be. And people that are obsessed with protecting their own kingdom, their own throne, and their own um, self-preservation can't stoop to that level of honesty. So we shouldn't expect the same from Herod. So he says, I just want to know where he is so I can go worship him too. I think this would be a great experience. The Magi must not have known fully his character. They would have known that they would be duped. They were being duped, I would think, because I would assume that everybody in the region knew if he, a statement like this comes out of his mouth, it must not be sincere. Because fools are too self-absorbed to worship a savior. This is what we saw in our study last week is that if I am going to truly exalt the Lord, which is what worship is, if I'm going to lift him up in praise, I am uh, of necessity made low. I cannot worship him and exalt him while I'm seeing the same greatness in myself. So I have to allow myself to be brought low, to be reminded in, in my own humble state that I'm not worthy of the praise and the worship. I would rather give it to the one who deserves it. And fools are too self-absorbed to see this kind of humility, to engage in it. And this is yet exactly what we see the Magi doing. This will be our third principle. The wise celebrate the greatness of God from a posture of humility. Our text told us that they rejoiced exceedingly. They were freaking out. They were leaping. They were feeling like we finally arrived. We finally made it after all this hardship, after all this expense, after all this uncertainty, after hoping that we were getting it right by following this glowing ball in the sky, whatever it looked like. We finally seen that we've read everything the right way. We followed the leadership of the spirit. And here we are. It's finally happening. We've arrived. They rejoiced exceedingly. I feel for the authors. They must not be able to communicate as well as we would like. This is not just a, hey, hey, we made it. All right, pats on the back. This is great. This is one of the greatest senses of relief that anybody would ever feel. To help us see it, we can contrast this to the arrogance of the elite or the foolish. I know we should be moving on from them. It's 
yucky territory to keep staying stuck in what does foolishness look like. But you've all seen it. You know the, 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 the type of personality and mindset I'm talking about. The person who needs to keep up appearances, perhaps they see themselves as someone who's acquired great knowledge or great wealth or power or influence or something. There, there seems to be, it seems to be incompatible with some of those achievements, the ability to see yourself as, hey, this is great. I just can't believe I get to do this. Can't believe I get to talk to you. This is amazing that I would get to hang out or I get to experience this thing, this real humble kind of, I'm just here for it because I don't, I don't deserve anything like this. It seems incompatible with our impression of those that are the elites. Instead, they carry themselves like this is deserved of them, that they are entitled to this kind of access. So here we have these great travelers, these people of incredible power, and it would seem to be of wealth and influence, and they freak out over a baby. They drop to their knees. They celebrate the king authority, the lordship of Jesus. They're willing to uphold somebody higher than them. They didn't make it about the fact that, oh yeah, no, we're just, we're just, we wanted to be in the front row because we can afford the tickets. It wasn't their mindset at all. They were, they were thinking, I can't believe we're finally here. I can't believe we get to witness this. All that we've heard about, all that we thought we were interpreting, all that we have been hearing through the generations might actually be happening. We're alive in this moment to experience this. There's a humility that comes, a posture of humility that comes with wisdom that you and I would do well to seek in our lives and in our hearts. It's one that acknowledges the fact that everything that we have is a gift from the Lord. And we're saying, I can't believe I get to have experience, be a part of something like this. 1 Corinthians 1 says, because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. And then look at this list. This is the list that I that we should be saying, I can't believe I get this. I can't believe I have righteousness. I can't believe I have all of God's goodness, his purity, his right living and right standing, all the things that I failed at. I can't believe I have it applied to me. Like when God sees me, he says, I, my son was righteous for you. He was perfect for you. That's who I see when I look at you. Or our sanctification, that is that, that cleansing that happens in us, and it's that cleansing that keeps us growing and, and going forward. That it's even a gift that it wasn't just a one-time, okay, yeah, you're forgiven, now just get out of my face, I don't want to think of it anymore. I have greater things for you, and I'm preparing you for living a life that honors and glorifies me, and so I'm going to help you along that. And we say, who am I that you'd pay attention to me and give me this gift? And even my redemption, that, that I've been bought with a price, that I have been purchased by the one who now has ownership of me. And rather than me seeing that as some kind of stifling thing and cramping my freedom and my style, instead I say, I belong. I'm his responsibility now because he paid for me. And he's promised to take care of me. He's promised to lead me. He's promised to, to give me a hope and a future. When we wrestle with these kinds of gifts and we see that, mm, I do not deserve this. And we, and we do that as sometimes my mind will do this thing where I'll start off in Waterville and my, my mind will come back like a reverse Google map kind of thing. And I'll just see, and I'll be like, of all the people, of all the people in past, present and future around this entire globe, why do I know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? 
I'm no different from everybody else. I hadn't figured it out better than anybody else. And yet somehow he called me. Somehow he introduced himself to me. And who am I to say no? This is what happens to us when we wrestle with this just a little bit. Our worship gets sweeter. Our elevation of him becomes joyful, becomes celebratory. It isn't the kind of thing like sometimes I, I wince a little bit with the uh, psalmist uh, explanation of a sacrifice of praise. I get to the Lord. It's a sacrifice for us to praise him. But man, to us, it should not be a sacrifice. It should be an opportunity. Instead, they rejoiced exceedingly. They fell down and they worshiped him. This posture of servanthood, you know, it'd be like laying yourself down before the king and say, what do you have next for me to do, my Lord? Their longing desire had dropped them to their knees. It's kind of like in the words of my favorite hymn at Christmas time. It says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. And what happened? The soul felt something. The soul felt its worth. It awakened or enlivened, and it says a thrill of hope. Why? Because the weary, beat-up, discarded world is rejoicing. We get to see this. We get to be a part of this. And of course, we know that they gave very famously three gifts in honor to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They gave gold, which is, of course, appropriate to give a king. That's just the right kind of gift. But it also probably had very practical impact for Joseph and Mary. They were of meager means. Our scriptures said that if uh, in the Old Testament, the practice was if you were to give your sacrifice, you have to give a spotless and pure lamb. And if you don't have one, because God is merciful and gracious, if you cannot afford one, then a turtle dove will suffice. And we see that as Mary and Joseph offer their sacrifice to the Lord, they are giving a turtle dove. So now they have a little jangle in their pocket, as we might say. The one of the gifts that is given to this family is this gift of gold, which most likely would have funded their trip, their future trip that nobody knew about. Nobody knew it was brewing behind the scenes except for the Lord. But he stirred in them to bring the gift of financial resource and blessing. And they were going to have to flee to Egypt because of this freaky mandate that we're going to slaughter all the kids. And they're like, we got to get out of here because we have to protect Jesus. They wouldn't have had the funds to do it. They were given frankincense, which is what we're seeing in the word incense, an expensive, uh, an aromatic kind of fragrance. And I, and I learned along the way, too, that this was something that was an extraction of trees and they would dry it out and everything. And the way to get the fragrance out of it would be to crush it, to smash it down. It reminds us, right, of Isaiah who said that he was crushed for our iniquities. This morning in some time in the scriptures, I came across Psalm 34 where it says he is near to those who are crushed in spirit. They wouldn't have known why they were giving these things to the Lord Jesus. And we don't know for sure if this was the correlation, but wouldn't it make sense that God would have thought these things through? wanted us to see this imagery and be moved and inspired by it even some thousands of years later. And he gave them, they gave him myrrh, which is a pretty odd gift, seeing it was an embalming agent. It was fragrance for covering the stench of a decaying body, which is weird. The rabbis would associate the use of myrrh with sacrificial death. And yet this was a part of what they were giving him. 
It's incredible. All of this is pointing to, we just sang about it in that incredibly moving song before the, the message and the candle lighting time. All of this is pointing to the fact that when he came to be born, there was a grave in mind, that there was a cross in view, that there was an empty tomb that we would discover and experience. Now, I don't share this little story in jest. I, I, it's shocking in a little, in a little bit, but the story is told of this mom who was shopping and she was shopping at Christmas time, and like any of us, she was getting overwhelmed by all the needs and the giant list and the expense and all those kinds of things, and she's just carrying all the bags from the mall, and she ends up in the elevator, and it's a crowded elevator, and she shouts out, she goes, I don't know who came up with this Christmas thing, but they need to be shot. And the people in that, in that elevator, it just kind of went, it just a lull and a silence rested over the elevator. Someone in the back just spoke up and said, don't worry, we've already taken care of that. We hung him on a cross. This is the reason for Christmas. The one who came up with the reason for Christmas was that he would die for us and that we would be forgiven of our sins. I want to look at the, the last verse of our text. And not to make a great stretch here in terms of application, but please let me, just indulge me for a moment. I know that this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but... In verse 12, the Magi, after they had visited with Jesus and they had the party, the gift giving, all that sort of stuff, it says, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It's simply what it means. They were warned, don't go back to Herod. It'll cause trouble for Jesus. So go back a different way. That's what happened. But I want us to see something here that it is risky to worship the true king of the Jews. That when we step closer to the one who is a threat to all other lesser powers, we risk, we stick our own necks out and put ourselves on the line a little bit to even be close, to even be near, to even be say we're associated with such a one is risky business. No doubt you have experienced some of the discomforts and the alienations that can come from families. As you say, I'm pursuing Jesus. Even those of you that were raised in a religious context, once it becomes this fanatical focus on one person named Jesus Christ, and he's transformed me, he's calling me to be a part of like a, a church on a regular basis. I might even give some of my money and my time and my efforts and talents to him. I may have found new friends and what has essentially become my family. It starts getting weird for others and they start a, a, a mild low-key oppression or an alienation. No doubt many of you have experienced that. Some of you in trying to pursue what relationships are right, which ones bring honor to the Lord, it starts taking some other options off the table and you start going, man, I didn't know following Jesus was going to cost me this much. My heart, my emotions, my everything is moving down here. But I know that in reality, this pursuit doesn't honor the Lord. And now I'm going to have to give this up in order to follow him. Maybe in your careers, on the job, you've said the quote unquote wrong thing, or you've been asked to do the thing that you know wouldn't honor your Lord. And you say, oh man, I didn't know following Jesus. I didn't know visiting with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords would cost me this much. Maybe as you've sat in a classroom 
And you've heard all kinds of things thrown at you that you know is part of that system of explanation and explaining away the power of God and the presence and the reality of God. And you say, okay, do I get the grade or do I stand for what I believe? Let me just say in passing on this, this isn't in my notes, but I feel like the Lord would have me say this, is we've got to really be praying and supporting people that are navigating some very tricky waters in culture today. It's easy for us, I do it too, it's easy for us to be on a high horse from a distance, isn't it? I know exactly what you should have said. I know exactly the risk you should have taken. You should have stood up and done this and paid the ultimate price. Very easy to say that from an ivory tower off at a distance. What we need to be doing as a church is praying for growing wisdom for our people as they walk through all kinds of relational challenges or, or um, career challenges and even, like I said, in the classroom and all these kinds of things, these, these landmines that people are preparing to step on and they're having to say to the Lord, what would you have me do in this moment? We can't be de- demanding that people know exactly what to do right on the spot, that they grow in this in terms of a growing wisdom that the Lord is giving them. And we can aid in that as we pray for them. We show grace. We come alongside and work through that. I hope that makes sense. Again, like I said, it wasn't part of what I was planning to say, but I think it's important. The, the wise men go back by another way. And I think the point that we should extract from this is that w- wisdom leads us to better paths for Christ's sake. Leads us down better paths for our freedom. It just takes some risk. It takes some willingness to hear the voice of the Lord like they received it in a dream, but we're seeing it here in Scripture. We see it in the challenge that we give one another to be able to say, okay, Lord, I think you're having me go a different route than the one I'm so used to. The one I'm used to gets me in trouble. The one I'm used to, I pay a great cost for, never seems to get me any further to towards the Lord or His love. I I think, Lord, you're redirecting me down a different path. Can you trust him with that leading? God's love, here's a couple of thoughts just to be thinking about as we wrap up. God's love is universal. We're seeing that in this story. It's available to the rich and the poor. It would have been just as available to Herod as it was to the wise men as it was to Joseph and Mary. This is the universal reach of God's love. Doesn't mean just because he came and even just because he died, he covered everybody and they can all ignore him and be okay. It just means it's available for everybody. It's available to Jew or Gentile. God doesn't care about the national background that you have or the color of your skin or the religious uh, history you have or any of those kinds of things that this universal message has arrived for all people. And God's love is enduring. Just as they would travel through such uh, long um, distances and at great expense, the Lord did far more. Scripture tells us that he left his throne in heaven to humble himself, to be born in the wrappings of human flesh. He is the, the praise of heaven. He's the light of heaven, perfectly comfortable, always celebrated. And he says, yeah, I'm going to go down to that stinky planet, have them give birth to me, ignore me, reject me, pull my beard out, scar my back, and then ultimately kill me on a cross. He did that for you. He came to find you. He traveled at great distance and great expense to find you. 
So the question comes back to us, how far will you go to find him? How far will you go to serve him, to give him what he deserves as a sacrificial and humble king? Jeremiah 29 says that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That isn't passive, is it? Will you trust him enough to change your path towards freedom? This is what the wisdom of God affords us. That's what the bright light that Jesus is comes into our life and shows us this is the path you should be on and I will be faithful to lead you down it. And as I'm sure you've heard before, wise men still seek the Son of God. Let's be among those wise men and seek them ourselves. Would you stand please and let's pray. Lord God, ours is a tendency to desire the foolishness that comes natural to us. We know this, Lord. I lament that. I don't know why it is. It aggravates and angers me about myself. Lord, I see the expediency of my foolishness, or I see the shortcuts to the things that I would want or feel I deserve. And instead, your wisdom is speaking to me and to us, Lord, about being patient and resting in you and waiting on you so that you will provide all that our soul has ever wanted or needed. Lord, we need to draw nearer to you to believe these things. We need to draw nearer to you to trust you in these ways. So, Lord, forgive your people. Forgive us, Lord, for trading you in for lesser gods. Forgive us, Lord, for protecting the throne of us instead of being excited at your arrival and wanting to come so that we can worship you too. And Lord, for those that are here in this room or maybe even watching online who do not know you and have resisted the call of your glorious light, I pray, Lord, that they would just surrender that the long and dusty trail that they've been on of rebellion and hiding themselves from your love, Lord, is exhausting and it's a dead end. Rescue them, Lord, from that. Speak to them, Lord, in the quietness of their soul, but if they're blocking you out and they're resisting you, Lord, then shout to them and rattle their cage to get their attention, Lord, because there is nothing more valuable than being found in you. So, Lord, we just pray, God, for a miraculous change in our hearts. Lord, that true biblical wisdom would rest on our souls, that we would find our peace in following you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.